Welcome to episode 53 of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I am your co-host, the father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, a.k.a. Matt Rawlings, and I am joined, as always, by my trusty co-host... Jackson, the son, and oh, now that I've been made welcome, I think I'll be dropping by this podcast quite a bit. In fact, anytime I feel like it, with the listener's kind permission, of course. <laughs> we are a spoiler podcast. We spoil the movies we discuss. And for this episode, we are taking a look at Fright Night from 1985. So to dig into this flick, which I will just go ahead and admit that it is a favorite of mine from my teen years, we needed to bring in a ringer, so please welcome the host of the Phantom Galaxy podcast, the Beast from Baltimore, Mr. Nathan Bartabal. Hey, Matt. Hey, uh, Jackson. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited about this. I'm excited to talk about Fright Night. Like you're saying, Matt, it's a movie from uh, my younger years and a movie I had a lot of affection for. It was one of the movies that kind of jump-started my love of horror. Mm. And it, But it's also one of those things that when it, when it comes around the podcast, I, I realized I don't think I've talked about it in a while or even watched it in a couple of years. So it was a lot of fun to get a chance to revisit it. Something moved in next door that isn't human. They did kill a girl over there. It's horrifying. It's unspeakably evil. And now, it knows that you know. Fright Night. If you love being scared, it'll be the night of your life. Rated R. Sneak preview Friday night. Check newspapers for theaters. Good deal. And so, Nathan, when did you? Do you remember when you first saw Fright Night? Yeah, this is one of those. I think we all have those stories of the movie we saw when we were probably too young to see it. And uh, this fall. Falls in. I saw this actually when I was in the third grade. Wow. And now, now to be fair, the version I saw. So, because I'm uh, I'm 41 now. So when the movie came out, that was what 1985. Yeah. Throw in a, a year or two later, and that was it was 1987, I guess, when I actually saw it. And so by the time I saw it, it was actually playing on television like at that point so it was the edited version of television it didn't have the nudity and it still had funny enough it still had most of the violence but some of that was <laughs> was truncated and i wasn't really supposed to be watching it it was one of those deals where i think my it was right at halloween it may have even been halloween we come back from trick-or-treating and i think we passed out on the couch or something and i now understand what that feeling is like when you're the parents and you want to watch something and you have these sleeping children and you're like do i move them or do i not move them and i just pray they don't wake up <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was one of those deals. And by the point I had woken up, the the scenes, the the more sketchy kind of earlier scenes had already occurred. And so Peter Vincent was just coming into the story at that point. And I grew up watching horror movies, not excessive ones. At that point, I think I had only really seen, as far as vampires are concerned, I'd seen the universal Dracula movies. I had yet, I was just starting to see a little bit of the, the Hammer ones, again, edited uh, on television because that was the first time I'd had exposure to like a horror movie fright host. Uh, there was a guy, I don't know where he was actually, um, uh, kind of broadcasting out of, but there was Dr. Morgus on television here mm -hmm. in Baltimore. And he had, he would play the universal horror movies. And then like when he ran out of those, he started playing the, the hammer ones. So some of the tamer hammer movies I'd seen bits and pieces of. So I had a bit of a context when I saw it, but yeah, I, in the third grade, I didn't, I don't, I don't remember particularly creeping me out. And I think why I enjoyed it, why I latched onto it was because uh, it, because it had a fun vibe to it for most of it. You know, I'm looking back at now and in a different light, but what I was taken out of it was like the monsters and the creature effects, which I had never seen that in a vampire movie at that point. 
Well, no, we'll talk about that. I don't I don't think it had been done up until, you know, that point, really, um, unless you go back to kind of the you know, transformation of Nosferatu. I don't think, you know, we've really seen anything like it. So, um, Jackson, I know you've seen it twice this week, but when did you first see it? My first experience with Fright Night, uh, it's one of those fabled uh, legends that you tell around the campfire. I was over at a friend's <laughs> house, and this was on the TV. Uh, and it's the scene where Evil Ed is on top of the bed. He's just taken off the wig uh, <laughs> when he was oh. playing Charlie's mother. And he's kind of cackling and acting like a maniac. And, of course, there's that famous oven line. And I had no idea what was going on. There's a guy that's wearing this Sherlock Holmes-looking outfit. And at that point, I hadn't <laughs> seen uh, Hammer movies. And I, I, I didn't know about Peter Cushing and, and obviously what had inspired Peter Vincent's character. So I just thought, okay, so we got Sherlock Holmes. And what appears to be a werewolf, based on the scene, I had no idea he was a vampire, a werewolf uh, with an X on his head. And that's what I thought of Fright Night for about a year and a half, until I finally saw it uh, for the second time with you, all the Mm. way through. And, uh, yeah, I enjoyed myself quite a bit. I watched it again this week, as you mentioned. uh, And this time I took something different from it. I think the first time I watched it with you, uh, it was in, like, a very comfortable environment. I thought it was just fun. It was a fun movie. This time I tried to pay attention to the horror aspects, and I thought there were actually some pretty uh, scary moments, or at least there would be, mm-hmm. sort of as a gateway horror thing. You can't really show this to kids. There is some nudity in it, of course, and um, some, some violence. But I think some aspects have that classic feel of, like, the monster squads and, and the like, that those 80s adventure movies. Old so Lost um, Boys, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it's equal parts fun and scary for, the like, the teens and, and uh, young adults, so... I really enjoyed uh, myself both times, but for different reasons. Yeah, and we're going to get into this because I, I watched some of the special features of Tom Holland today. So I first rented this on VHS back in 1986, the week it came out. And I had heard about it, but it was the box cover that sold me. That poster is fantastic. Of uh, Amy over the house with the shark mouth. It's one of the best VHS box covers. Now, unfortunately, I watched it. I loved it. Uh, but the VHS was a pan and scan. Oh. Um, yeah, it, yeah. And so, you know, it was shot in 35 millimeter anamorphic. Um, and so it wasn't until I got the Blu-ray that I got to see, you know, as it was intended with that. There's more of this screen. movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you and remember that on the VHS. Yeah. It, but that point in the VHS is when they started releasing the letterboxes because it was a smaller picture, you know, at that point in time, people were like this. The, there's less of the pictures. Like, no, you have more of the picture. It's just yeah. smaller. Oh, I know. I remember hearing those complaints because we. I worked in a video store in yeah, college, and, and so many people complain. Why people return the video? Yeah, yeah. There's something wrong with this. I'm like, no, there's not. I was thinking, there's something wrong with you. Um, <laughs> oh man. Well, uh, for, if there's anybody out there who hasn't seen this, and I can't imagine there is, but. The IMDb synopsis reads, a teenager discovers that the newcomer in his neighborhood is a vampire. So he turns to an actor in a television horror show eh, for help dealing with the undead. That's, for IMDb, that's... Not bad. Yeah, that's okay. When they when they kind of even come close, you kind of want to applaud IMDb, because yeah. sometimes it's like to have me watch the movie. Uh, let's talk about the plot and screenplay first. So... Tom Holland wrote and directed the film. Uh, he's an actor turned successful screenwriter. He had uh, penned Psycho 2, which is a surprise hit. Uh, and because of that, he got a shot to direct 
And he admitted that this was like his fantasy as a kid growing up as a horror nerd, being bored in Poughkeepsie, New York. He was like, if only a vampire lived in the street or a werewolf or something like that. And so it was like wish fulfillment for him. And so he is a, he is basically Charlie Brewster, you know, who watched horror movies on the weekend with a corny horror host, which he had Nathan. And I had one of those two super hosts out of WAB in Cleveland. And, he, you know, so this is really um, I don't think if you look at Tom Holland's filmography, I think you can see that this is where his heart was in all of his filmography. This was it. Yes, I, I agree. You can see that the passion poured into it. There's a lot of uh, personality. And that same thing, I think that why seeing it when I was younger like that and why it didn't necessarily terrify me, it was kind of that wish fulfillment. I remember thinking the same thing. Oh, you know, not in the Burbs has that same vibe, right? I think what yeah. Jackson's getting at the sorts of 80s movies where you have this possible thing. It's dangerous, but it's also interesting. And I had a... Uh, a single uh, male neighbor who moved into our neighborhood not too long after I saw this movie. He turned out to be a slob and not a vampire. So it was a little disappointing. <laughs> I remember going into his house and be like, okay, there's, there's beef in the butter, but I don't see any signs that this guy is killing people. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. It's so, you know, it, we open up, we've got Charlie who's about to finally score with his girlfriend. And then he knows there's two people carrying, a coffin, and later we see Jerry Dandridge, played by Chris Sarandon, and we'll talk about the cast in a minute, and his quote-unquote roommate, Billy Cole, played by Jonathan Stark. And Charlie sees a prostitute go into the house, and she's found dead. He sees Jerry uh, getting ready to bite another prostitute, and um, and so the hunt is on. He tries to convince Peter Vincent, played, you know, of course, wonderfully by Roddy McDowell, and the combination of Peter Cushing and Vin Vincent Price, to help him, he thinks he's nuts. Peter notices Jerry doesn't cast a reflection, and boom, now the action kicks in. Um, did it, and I'm interested, Nathan and you, Jackson, both of you, because I was about, I was almost 14 when I saw this, so it, to a degree, me as well, but did it bother you, Nathan, the first time you saw it, as young as you saw it especially, that it takes a little while for it to really, for the action to kind of kick in? And again, the very first time I saw it, I had missed those early chapters. But I okay. think so. I was, I'd say I'm looking at it, I was 10 or 11. And I have watched a lot of movies to that point. And the Universal movies take a little bit to get going. Sure. But I think because a lot, I it, something I thought about the other day, I got the basic answer is I it didn't bother me because I think there was always something genuinely, genuinely interesting going on. Mm -hmm. And it does have that sort of because it's from the perspective of a kid in a sense he's a teenager but you know these characters even though they are teenagers they act maybe even just a little bit younger in some of the things they do right there is that feeling yeah. of helplessness and i realized because i watched older horror movies i don't know that it was really until you get to the late 1950s where you even had where people now people always make horror movies where kids are the main characters right or teenagers right. Are the main characters but all the universal horror movies are adults you know yeah uh and adults were the stars of horror movies all the way up until really like the blob i would say you know and so i think that so many horror movies i'd seen had adults and here were kids they were seeking the help of adults but that was and i hadn't seen the blob in movies like that at this point so probably at the Bob blob was probably more appropriate for me at this point in time so i think i was into this element of nobody's listening that the boy that cried wolf you know that's also, mm -hmm. Tom Holland cites that is that's kind of when you want to do the vampire version. And it has those elements of rear window. 
But I think that that helped me get into it because you're right. When I watched it this time, I realized that the my memory of Fright Night being this really wild vampire movie is only the, what, last 15 minutes or so of this movie yeah. or 20 minutes maybe? Yeah. Like, it really doesn't ramp up with all the crazy special effects. Those special effects aren't there. The only thing I can say, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this, is that it was down to the actors, particularly once Roddy McDowell yes. gets into the movie. I, I don't want to say he steals it because there's a lot of good performances in the movie, but before that, Evil Ed... And I'm not sure what Stephen Jeffries is doing there. It almost has a weird, like, it's like a young Jim Brewer on Red Bull kind of thing going as I'm watching. I'm like, it's a real we. I've seen Jeffries in other movies, not many of the movies on his IMDb list, but I've seen him. I remember him. I remember the first time I looked that up and I was scrolling down and suddenly I felt like I'd gone down the wrong rabbit hole. And I was like, let me scroll back. Let me scroll back. But, you know. Honey, if you look at my history, I promise I love you. He goes from playing Evil Ed to playing the plumber. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. But, like, the earlier, some of those movies like Moon 44, and he did a couple other 80s movies. In 976 Evil would probably be another example. And he's definitely kind of more unhinged here. But I think Evil Ed in the early going adds a lot of interest. And then you, Chris Sarandon, too, I was surprised how long it is before we actually see him, which isn't until that seen at the window you know that when charlie sees him for the first time that's the first time we see him and see his face yeah and he doesn't talk for a while so jackson i think i know the answer to this because you know while you are 17 years old your favorite movie is creature from the black lagoon and you love hammer films and you've done a video of your 10 favorite hammer films so i'm pretty sure i know the answer to this but i'll go ahead and ask did it bother you that it took so long to get to the action not at all. And yeah, that's the answer I'm sure you were expecting. Uh, and it's I think it, it ultimately, it comes down really to the actors, like uh, Nathan mentioned. The actors really carry this movie, and the writing, which I thought was really strong, um, and the atmosphere. I mean, it's just got that feel of a cozy 80s movie that's got a little bit of mystery and a little bit of danger in it, but it's nothing that our, our main characters can't overcome. It's got that feeling for me. And uh yeah. Roddy McDowell, Stephen Jeffries, um, and obviously um, William Ragsdale as the main character, and Chris Sarandon, who I'll be talking about later because I think oh, this yeah. is one of the best villain performances of the 80s. But yes. um, an amazing cast overall and a small cast at that. Uh, but I think they work with the material they're given, which is good on its own, and they really take it to that next level. So even though the real horror action doesn't start until, like you said, the last 20 minutes, uh, it's got that aura throughout it, and uh, it rides that line between comedy and horror so well that it, it really kept me invested. Yeah, and it, 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 me too, because as a kid, I grew up, you know, like I said, watching Superhost out of Cleveland. And so I grew up watching the Universal Horror movies, the Hammer Horror films, AIP films. And so, one, I completely understood when I saw it on video, I completely understood where Tom Holland was coming from. I mean, five, ten minutes in, I was like, I got it. I, I know where, where he's at. Um, and, you know, I, I saw it then. It's like, this has got to be just, you know, wish fulfillment on this guy. And so, and... Now, this was the interesting thing before we wrap up talking about the plot and the screenplay, because I know we want to get to the actors, which is a strong suit. But um, And I have not read the screenplay. I haven't looked it up online. But I watched today uh, the Fright Night reunion at Fright Fest 2. And so the panel was Tom Holland, Chris Sarandon, William Ragsdale, Amanda, uh, Amanda Beers, Jonathan Stark, and Stephen Jeffries. And... 
so uh, the only creepy part about the the thing is he's they're being interviewed by Rob Galuza. But anyway, um, they're talking about it, and all of them were basically like none of them were basically horror fans. None of them. I mean, Jonathan Stark was a groundling. You know, he was in the he was doing improv comedy. Um, none of them were into horror, but they all said the same thing. When they read the screenplay, they said it's one of the best screenplays they'd ever read. Uh, Chris Sarandon had said that after he did, I think it was The Sentinel in 1977, yeah. he said he was never going to do another horror movie again. And his agent said, no, you got to look at this. And he said, I'm not going to do it. And he saw the title. He's like, oh, this is ridiculous. And he said, I opened it up. And 10 seconds in, just because of Tom Holland's prose, I was sucked in. I was ready to go. And so I would love to read the screenplay. And Jackson, you should probably read the screenplay because when you've got like six or seven actors and, and they're not just blowing smoke because if you watch interviews with Stephen Jeffries, he still doesn't hold things back. He's pretty unfiltered. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't strike me as, you know, somebody who filters himself much. And so, but they all talk about what an amazing screenplay it is. And so um, I, I would love to read it. Uh, I, you know, just what they showed in the extras, just some of the the way that Holland describes scenes in the screenplay. It's just absolutely amazing. So before we talk about, there's one thing I want to bring up and the actors. Anything else we want to talk about with the plot and the screenplay before we move on? Sure, I had a couple quick thoughts. And one of Go those is what you said. I haven't read the screenplay either, but you can tell that structurally it's very sound. Even if, mm -hmm. you know, watching the movie and rewatching the movie now, I like realized, okay, you know, there actually are a number of just continuity errors, but those things don't bother me that much ultimately. But you're watching, you're yeah. like, okay, well, for a movie with this caliber in terms of the level of special effects and actors, you're suddenly like, oh, wait, that's those are kind of big continuity errors, but the energy kind of carries you through. But I think it's that structuring of the storytelling mm -hmm. and the fact he's combining so many elements. You know, you watch it and you might remember Rear Window, but and that very simple. Uh, Boy Who Cried Wolf. But then as you're watching, you kind of realize this isn't that far off from the original Dracula in terms of story either, you know, right. that with uh, having the and certain things that he did that Tom Holland chooses not to explain, for example, what exactly the Jonathan Stark character is. Ah, uh, And that was my question. And I, I think I may have an answer, but go ahead. And, and you know, what's funny about that is I have over the years thought to look up and read things about all these different movies, you know, and particularly when the internet becomes available, you're suddenly like, I have so many questions. Yes. And yet when these movies came out, you'd have to hunt for, for, for little clips and things you'd hear on TV when they would do these horror specials. But one question I never have had the desire to look up because like you said, I kind of have a basic handle on it enough that satisfies me. And I'll, I'll wait till you, you want to bring it up, but what that character is, because I think that they're playing with the vampire mythology enough yes that it doesn't seem out of left field and there's no real reason, you know, for one thing, by the time it's pertinent to the story, they're just like, we got to find a way to get him, you know, to take him out. And when it, when it works, they just move on to the next thing. So there isn't a moment where someone needs to stop and say, well, I guess he was, you know, quote unquote, but I think that's interesting because I don't think you would see that in a movie now. And in fact, if you look at the remake that they made, not that that character was in there, the remake does a lot of that, tying all the little pieces together in a way that's almost irritating sometimes. Yes, you know? I agree. I absolutely agree. Um, yeah, I, I, I'll just go ahead and say it now. I was not a big fan of the remake. I saw it the day it came out. Um, I had hopes for it because I loved Fright Night so much. Uh, I thought the cast at first glance looked really good. 
you know, I mean, you've got, was it Tony Collette and Anton Yelchin, rest in peace. David Tennant. Yeah. David Tennant. And, and, you know, and so, but there wasn't the charm to it. There wasn't the heart to it at all. No, it just felt to me very it, I think if it yes, and I think it was to me it's somewhat passable. There are moments I really enjoy it. And I actually think Colin Farrell's maybe one of the strongest things about that movie in mm -hmm. terms of what he's doing. But the script just doesn't I think that's a good place to to compare the two scripts. That script is hammering pieces that they think people want to see from the old movie into this one. And you're right, it's the it doesn't quite ever come together. And I think that I might it's more enjoyable as a as a movie if you didn't know there was a previous Fright Night. But the comparison yeah. points are just there that the characters never they never come into their own. The David Tennant magician never comes into his own. Even Anton no. Yelkin, who's a great actor, Charlie doesn't come into his own. They try to give Evil Ed more to do, but it's not. It just doesn't work. No. I mean, it doesn't work that way. And I think it's because Tom Holland, maybe because he was an actor. That script, yes. I would be, I would imagine that when we, if we ever get our hands on that script and read it, what you're going to find is that the structure and the atmosphere are there, and there's a lot of room for the actors to do their thing. I think that's what he provided. Oh, absolutely. And when we get to Tom, we'll talk about that because watching his interviews today was very interesting. But Jackson, your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I haven't see I haven't uh, seen the remake, but looking it up, I saw an article from Bloody Disgusting calling it a perfect horror remake. So I don't know about that, but the cast looks great, but I don't think it can top this cast, even though I don't think there's a a cast member on here that, like you said, was a horror fan or would you would even expect to be good in a movie like this. The fact that they're so invested in the script from reading it from the get go and the fact that Tom Holland is an actor's director I think that that really results in a fantastic blend of a really good screenplay and a really good cast making a perfect combination. And uh, you can see that with other movies like Child's Play. Now, I don't honestly, from reading the script, and I have read the Child's Play uh, screenplay, and I don't know if he wrote that. Did he write the Child's Play? He rewrote it. He did some script doctoring on it. Okay, I see. Yeah, now, yeah it was one that nobody wanted to direct. Everyone kept turning it down, and then he got a hold of it and— and did his thing. Yeah. Right. Because how unconventional of an idea, right? This little killer doll. And you would think the same of Fright Night. Like, what is this? Some homage to those cheesy old horror movies? Nobody wants that. They want these flashers nowadays, which is a very clever line referenced uh, by Peter Vincent yes. in the movie. But uh, he makes it work. Tom Holland is a person that can make it work, even with the most ridiculous Stephen King plots, like with Thinner or Langoliers or whatever. I don't know. You know those were... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Those were those were rough for me, buddy. I know you like it. I oh boy. Thinner is a blast. And I want to Montana is going crazy in that movie. I will give yes. you that that it's worth watching just to see Joe Montana say things like, Yes, he was a mook, but he was my mook. And yeah. obviously it got Stephen King's approval because he's in the movie. Yeah. Uh, he, well, he later said, you know, I'm in a lot of my movies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, except except the best one, The Shining. He wouldn't he he did not right. give a seal of approval no, to that one. I know, but one. I I I saw Thinner for only two reasons when it came out, when it dropped to VHS. I saw it because it was Stephen King and I saw it because I had a crush on Kari Wurr. You That's know what? There's the exact same two reasons <laughs> as I was waiting to hear that. <laughs> Yeah, that's the only reason to watch that movie, in yes. my opinion. But all right. Anything else on the screenplay before we talk about the creature that is Billy Cole? I've got nothing. OK, 
Well, I've always wondered that too. And and Jackson, we even talked about that, you know, when mm-hmm. we were sitting here watching it the other day on, on my Blu-ray, it was like, what is Billy Cole? And so, you know, I watched, I had seen the uh, documentary, You're So Cool Brewster before, and where Jonathan Stark says, that's the question he gets asked most at horror conventions. Exactly what is Billy Cole? And he says, go knock on Tom Holland's door and ask him because I have no idea. Um, well, Tom Holland finally answered it at a panel. He said, well, he said, here's the way I looked at it. Um, I wanted a Renfield character. I figured Jerry, as old as he is, needed somebody who could help him out during the day, but he also needs somebody who could be loyal. So Billy Cole has been bit by Jerry, but has not been drained enough to be a vampire, a full vampire. Oh, okay. That makes that makes a lot of sense. My so theory was a little bit wilder. Yeah, yeah he's my, like a familiar. Yeah. I'd like to hear yours, Jackson, because mine's a l I don't say deeply wilder than that, but I mean it doesn't account for a couple things. But yeah, what what did you think? Uh in my notes today when I was watching this movie, I literally wrote one thing, one word, and this is a I'll I'll show cho- I'll uh, quote Charlie Day from Always Sunny for this. Ghoul. He's That's a it. ghoul. That's it. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. where I'm at too. And I think it's because of what happens to him the moment so they put the stake in but it doesn't seem to have the same effect that happens when they kill the other vampire. Of course every vampire dies differently in this movie. Right. Honestly. But he instantly deteriorates. I mean not just back to his human form, he breaks down and decomposes and you get the feeling I mean there's a point where the sand and dust are sort of pouring out of him along with ooze get the idea that he's only been being held together uh, almost in an automaton or a golem sort of way. Yeah. And that's what I thought, too, that maybe the concept of the familiar, but he's he's essentially also dead uh, because I feel like a familiar would just die, right? But, you know, he's he is a ghoul. He's something that, that Jerry has sort of uh, cobbled together or has brought back from the dead using as a servant. And I, I, to me, you know, that, that explanation seemed to play out in the way mm-hmm. they visualized it. I love that they did that, that there's enough there that familiar ghoul, you get the idea. You don't really walk away from the movie. That wasn't a, well, it was a question. It wasn't a burning question. I didn't feel like it was a slight or a hole in the plot. Right. Yeah. I didn't either. I mean, I, I kind of figure that as well, but so, but when Tom Holland said that, that he wanted a Renfield character because he thought Renfield was one of the, was maybe just as creepy, if not creepier than Dracula. And the original, he wanted a Renfield character, and he really wanted, he kind of basically said he wanted that shot on the stairs. They shoot him in the head. They assume he's dead. And they turn around, and of course, Billy gets up and starts walking towards them. And Tom Holland said, I lifted that directly from Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yes, you can see now that he says that. Yeah, that's a lot. The tone is in there a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And he said he just he wanted that shot. And so that's how he that's how he wrote it just for that shot. And he just it was a total homage to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which he says he still thinks is the funniest movie ever made was his line. So but I don't know. Jackson, have you seen Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein? I yeah. have. Though that's not so the good. one I I, I I've seen a couple of Abbott and Costello. I'm I'm fairly certain I've seen that one. Uh, but that's in the that first one, I think, yeah, yeah, I in, think you're right. In that scene where uh, uh, Chris Sarandon walks away and you actually see Billy in the background sit up, that reminded me of Michael Myers in Halloween. Did did oh, yeah. any of you get that? Yeah. That that quick oh setup? sure, 
uh, I was like, oh, that's 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 like Michael Myers. And the same when he gets, you know, takes so many shots to, to put him down, then ultimately a stake in the heart. That kind of reminded me of that. But yeah, I can definitely see how uh, Abbott and Costello was a tone setter for that, especially when they start to walk away. Then they hear the creaks and they slowly turn their head to look behind them. That's yeah. classic Abbott and Costello right there. And I think oh, that's absolutely. that strength of this movie. When, you know, a lot of people, when we talk about horror comedies, is it more comedy? Is it more horror? You don't really ask that because they're both here in kind of equal measure. And I was listening to, I think it was Tarantino talked to, and Tarantino talks a lot, but, you know, sometimes yes. he says, says interesting yes. things. And he was talking with um, Eli Roth, and they were, yes. they were talking about things. He was talking about the Abbott and Costello movies, and the thing that he appreciated about that was Abbott and Costello are obviously in their comedy, right? That's their comedy. Right. But the monsters are still in a universal horror movie. You know, the monsters are still doing the things they would do, including throwing people out windows and killing people. Yeah, and all the things I remember they would be that doing, interview. He's going, that person's yeah. dead. Yeah, she just went off the side of the castle, and she's not coming back. (laughs) And that kind of was when we I watched that movie with my kids. That's what you kind of get is having Costello are funny and they're doing their thing, and they are distracting you a little bit from it. But when the monsters need to be creepy, they aren't acting like buffoons. You know, the Wolfman doesn't get scenes where he's jumping on the couch and tearing it up or silly stuff. They get to be who they are, and that's true of this movie. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and Tom Holland said, he said, it kind of like John Landis with an American Werewolf in London. You know, John Landis said, basically, look, American Werewolf in London is a horror movie. The comedy is on is there on purpose, but it's not a comedy. And that's kind of what Tom Holland said, too. He said the humor's there on purpose. He said because the humor's there in the universal horror movies and not just the Abbott and Costello, but it's there. You know, he, he said, so the humor is definitely there on purpose, he said, but it's still a horror movie. And, you know, he went out of his way in the interview, in the interviews I watched today, one of them he did with Ryan Turek back from the old Shock to You Drop days where he was saying, you know, look, he said, yeah, this was a, a clear homage, you know, and yeah, you know, the humor is there, but I, I in no way wanted to parody the vampire genre because I don't think it deserves that. I respect it too much. And I think that comes through. Oh, yeah, certainly. Yeah, de- and a lot of the, the comedy in this movie uh, doesn't necessarily come from just slapstick and, and uh, the, the classic comedy you would think of from that era. Um, it actually comes from, oh, man, Charlie has really gotten himself in deep to this, and it's comically uh, bad for him at this point. Like the scene where uh, he's talking to Evil Ed, and Ed's like, oh, you know, the vampire can't come over unless he's invited by the rightful owner. And then he, he <laughs> the very next scene, he walks down, and his mom has invited Jerry in. And then Jerry basically manipulates Charlie's mom into not only inviting him, but also allowing him to come in whenever he wants. Because yes. once she says, you can come over anytime, you can almost see a grin creep across Jerry's face. So I was laughing at that point just because of Charlie's reaction. It was just brilliant writing and acting coming together in that scene. And that's where the comedy comes. I think a, a lot of it is just like people realizing, oh, we're about to die, aren't we, unless we do something really quick. Yeah. You're right. It extends from the characters. It, and I think that's the thing. The humor, there's never a humorous scene in the movie that is really purely due to some sort of slapstick or a person falls down or a sight mm-hmm. gag. It's always related to the, the character's reactions. And eventually, a lot of that does come down to what Chris Sarandon is doing and what Peter uh, Peter Vincent, you know, what Roddy McDowell's yeah. Peter Vincent is doing. And those two juxtapositions. And of course, I think William Ragsdale kind of I don't want to say too much before we get to the actors, but I think he gets a short shrift because he's doing a lot yeah. 
of good work here, but everyone else gets these kind of flashier parts. You know, he and Amanda Beers are doing really good work, but they, they're around these three hams at various yes. points that are just relishing these really rich roles that they have. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So before we get to the cast, because I think that's really where the meat is, um, do you guys have a favorite scene? Is there one that just pops out to you before we move on to the actors? Nathan, do you have a favorite scene in Fright Night? As a kid, my favorite scene was the one where they go where they, they go back into the house and they do battle with the with Jerry and you have where Peter Vincent essentially has gained his confidence. He's gained his faith. Yeah. You know, whether that's faith in God or faith in himself or all or both. And, you know, he's kind of now doing battle with the, with the vampire. And of course, the shark mouth thing, you know, that's just so cool and weird when I, but I think when a scene that was truncated, when I saw it, that, that back in the day on television was the sequence with evil Ed, which I think is ultimately my favorite scene in the movie. Now, uh, extending yeah. when he, when, Oh, I say the scene with evil Ed, it's the scene where Evil Ed reveals himself to Peter. Peter's run into the house to check on. Uh, he's going to get help from uh, uh, Charlie's mom, but when he gets upstairs, Evil Ed, you know, the scene that J Jackson was talking about, reveals himself, and then there is that battle. But that is my favorite scene in the movie because it, it, it's scary initially when that wolf comes out and comes down the, oh, yeah. the hallway. It's super creepy. The special effects are top-notch there where you have that animatronic wolf puppet or whatever it is crawling across the floor. But there's a lot of poignancy in that scene. It become, it goes from being a scary scene to a really sad, the most to me, oh, the most gosh. dramatic scene in the movie. And I was watching it today, this morning, and I, what I thought was interesting is that Stephen Jeffries Outside of the wolf puppet, Stephen Jeffries was under that makeup, under that fake wolf head, and under right. that wolf, those werewolf prosthetics. So he's acting that whole scene out. But Roddy McDowell, and at this point, you see Peter Vincent. He's he's been the uh, you know he's kind of the charlatan at one point. He's the broken down hack, and right. then he's got his confidence back. And here, the compassion on his face when he's watching evil ed die i don't know that we've seen that in another vampire hunter kills no. his prey never that i can think of no and there are a couple of moments we'll talk about with real pathos in, in this movie which really impressed me um but before we get there jackson what about you do you have a favorite scene i have one favorite scene and two favorite moments uh which i'll hit quickly my favorite scene in the whole movie is what you mentioned that scene with evil ed and, and the wolf uh transformation the effects are amazing. The acting is amazing. You really feel bad for Ed um, because I think the reason I feel so sad is because as a vampire, he finally felt like he had some power, like he had some control over people and he wouldn't be picked on anymore, as Chris Sarandon said. Uh, and then that's immediately taken away from him and he's killed in a very brutal way. And you feel really bad, even though it, you're, you're rooting for Peter Vincent, no question. You do want him to survive the, the interaction. Uh, he's the, he's the cowardly lion who's found his bravery, right? Exactly. Yeah, so yeah, you, that, that's what uh, I think um, McDowell said his inspiration was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And usually the first vampire kill for a vampire hunter is an empowering moment, right? And most movies are like, wow, you know, I can do this now. But you see that look on Peter Vincent's face where he's like, is it worth it? You know, I'm bringing this person's life to an end, and he feels really, really bad for him. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that really struck me as a brilliant moment. And now my two favorite moments out of the movie. Uh, the first one is kind of a funny one, which is where Chris Sarandon, 
You know, he proudly flaunts the double-layered turtleneck uh, during the holy water scene. <laughs> he comes, he he walks across that stairway and then turns towards the camera, and you're like, oh, boy. Oh, boy, what are you wearing? Uh, but it's fantastic. And my other favorite moment is when the second time they come in and he appears at the top of the stairs, and he's walking along and dragging his sharp fingernail along the banister, and it's chipping up the wood as it goes. And something about that is so deeply unsettling to me. It's not as jarring as scraping your nails on a chalkboard, but there's something about him just so casually just stripping away the wood that made me feel very uncomfortable, uh, and I thought that was a great scene. And then he gets that big line where he's mocking them, essentially. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to Fright Night. Yeah, that's a great line. So my favorite scene is in, was the when... Uh, uh, Jerry goes to Charlie's room. You know, it starts off, you know, he walks in. Uh, Tom Holland told him to play it like, you know, you're the baddest thing in the world, all that kind of stuff, which he does at first, throws Charlie into the closet, you know, threatens to kill his mother. But then there's that scene where he is authentically bargaining with Charlie. You know, he seems to be like, look, you forget about me. I'll forget about you. What do you say? And, and then great so, line where he says, yeah. I'm giving you something I don't have, which is a choice. A choice. Yeah. And then Charlie goes for it. He pulls the crucifix, he grabs his arm, and then he just looks at him. And again, there's pathos in his face. And he goes, fool. You know, it's like, I, I'm willing to, you know, cut a deal here. And he, so it's, I, I love that. We'll talk definitely about Chris Sarandon, but the humanity that he brought, that it's not just a ravenous vampire. I love when he's walking out of the room of his mother's room and he's whistling strangers in the night as yes. he's closing his way into Charlie's. Let me, can I ask a, I don't want to send this on a rabbit hole, but can I ask a question though? And I agree it's a strong script, but with Jerry Dandridge, is he all, is he possibly a really bad vampire? I mean, it's just, what I mean by that is he, what he's doing, his whole thing, why he goes to Charlie and why he's offering this choice, right, is I need you to keep quiet about me, right? I need to be able to continue to do my thing here without being interrupted. And that's essentially why he's trying to wipe Charlie out, right? But mm -hmm. he seems to just go over the top a lot, even the fact that he's got the window open and then he's got the girl in front of the window and he knows he has neighbors. You know, it seems like that's a right. that's a bit of a problem. It's a bigger issue when he goes to the club to wipe out the two people who he doesn't want anyone to yes. know about him. And then he kills two people and causes an entire nightclub to look at him and run screaming into the yes. night. And you're like, wow, how has this guy lived as, as long as oh, he yeah, has? Yeah. I, re I remember, you know, watching it. I, I, and I've probably seen this movie, you know, 15, 20 times. And I owned it on VHS and, you know. And I remember once watching it with a girlfriend in, in, in the 90s, and she brought that up. And I go, well, I'm pretty sure he's on his way out to move. I don't think he's staying there long. You know, I think he's I think he and Billy are jumping in the Jeep, you know, at uh, sundown the next night and headed out of there. But uh, uh, but I, I think that, you know, I think what Chris Sarandon did with it. And I guess we can just go ahead and start talking. Let's just jump into the cast when we talk about this. Um, Tom Holland told every one of the main actors, come in with a, an entire biography for your character as you see it, and let's sit down as a group and talk about it. Which goes back to Holland being an actor, right? He's an actor's director. That's one of the reasons why the cast loved him 
so much. Stephen Jeffries actually almost got fired because he refused to do one because he thought Evil Ed was just two-dimensional, and he finally got talked out of it. What's funny is Art Evans, who has, you know, was in, what, ten, five, ten minutes as the cop, and he wrote, like, 20 pages backstory <laughs> <laughs> for his character. Um, but, you know, they, they go through this, and, and Chris Sarandon said he read all these books on vampire lore and all this other kind of stuff. And where Chris Sarandon says he came down was, you know, he goes back and forth. He's a complicated person. On the one hand, he believes he's invincible. He's lived all this time. He believes that people are below him. Um, but at the same time, he still has something in there where he remembers his humanity. And so there's a bit of a, a struggle that he's going through there. And so that's how Sarandon played it. You know, but there are times when he just also just loses his cool. You know, well, it's like that he, moment when he realizes he may not be invincible anymore, that maybe they can get the upper hand, you know, that those, yeah. those, those moments. And the Amy thing, I read, too, that that, which is also a weird sort of coincidence that, you know, Charlie's girlfriend just happens oh, sure. to be, you know, but I think what I read was that Sarandon offered that up. That was sort of part of his backstory was. Yeah. That he needs to have that element that showed up in the old Universal movies and it showed up in the Mummy and things like that. That okay, this is very much like the person I once had, and so I think that 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 definitely adds to it. There's also that thing that he brings to it is that bemusement that I guess for being alive so long and being potentially invincible, he just sort of looks down on everyone to a degree. Like you said, there's a bemusement. Yeah. You know, what does he say to? Uh, Roddy McDowell when he meets him. I've watched all your movies and they were very amusing. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, exactly. So, I, you know, Jackson, you brought this up. I mean, when I first saw the movie, I guess you would say critically, because the first time I remember watching it on VHS, um, I was a horror movie fan, but I'd come become a bit of a snob after watching and studying Psycho. And so I thought, ah, this will just be, you know, a fun popcorn movie. And I watched it. It wasn't until later that I began to kind of wrestle with it a, a little bit. And at first I thought, I remember when it first came out, well, this is a fun movie, but he doesn't strike me as, as a very threatening vampire. Um, but then rewatching it, there are times when you see, like in the club scene, I think when he kind of, when he looks at the bouncers and it's like, she's mine. And he's just got that, you know, condescending, like, I'm not I'm not afraid of you. I'm not intimidated by you. How dare you get in my way? And, you know, so he does have a bit of an edge even before he gets the makeup on. You know, which I know was Gary Oldman's thing in, in Bram Stoker's Dracula. You know, he was like, I'm just not very scary, even as an old man or crawling up a wall. That's one of the reasons he insisted on being a bat in that one scene in Bram Stoker's Dracula and being in full costume so that he could, you know, look at Anthony Hopkins and think he actually scared him. Um, but this time, you know, especially you're watching it this time, I think Sarandon's got a little bit of an edge. And I think I'm with you, Jackson, that I think he's a really good villain, even though he has some emotion. So thoughts, gentlemen, Nathan, I think he's more creepy particularly this time watching and it may be you know now where we are with everything re-watching some of this and it's like wow there's a lot of it's a lot of uncomfortableness i think intentionally so in the way saran is playing it i think saran is creepier without the makeup 
Uh, because once he gets the mech, even though some of that monster makeup is cool, you know, then he's trying to talk around the teeth. And particularly yeah. toward the end, it was funny because I'm looking at it and I'm like, okay, I know he's also Prince Humperdinck, but he almost looks like Miracle Max a few times there when he's on the <laughs> stairs with the hair and he's kind of he's talking through the teeth. He's trying to let the drool come out. And it's like, yeah. okay, but earlier on the in the dance scene, the scene in the in the alleyway with evil yeah. Ed when he, the moments when he, and that's where he's almost channeling, I, I think an underrated Dracula performance, which is Franklin Jello's Dracula. Yes. You know, the John Batta movie. And he seems like if, if Chris Sarandon is thinking about any version of Dracula as he's doing this, not that he has to, but if he is, it seems like it might be that one because he's playing that seductive and that charm, but he also plays it very much like a predator. But as a predator of young people, you know, yeah. if you look at those scenes when he uh, is seducing Amy, when she because it's all really against her will. She's she's being, you know, drawn to him, but it is all sort of forceful. And, and the choices he's giving Ed without the repercussions, you know, all of those things make him much more creepy. I mean, if people were analyzing or looking at this movie now, thankfully, the 80s felt didn't feel the need to do this. You could look at this as like Charlie Brewster's overheated mind is taking this predator who lives next door, this predator of young people, and he's turning him into a vampire. Maybe he's not a vampire at all. But the 80s like to have their cake and eat it, too, which made better movies, I think, most of the time. But I think that Sarandon's got that element. You watch it now, and those, to me, are the creepier moments. Like that, mm -hmm. even you got the sexy jazz music playing in the background <laughs> when he is seducing her in that scene when he actually goes to bite her, the way he, and he moves in and he, he holds back. I mean, that's creepy and uncomfortable to me watching that scene. And I think it was intended to be that way when it was shot. Those are the moments when it's like, this isn't much of a comedy right now. Yeah, no, completely agree. Jackson, what do you think? Now, I thought he was much more threatening even than that, because you guys were talking about even Chris Sarandon's thoughts on the character and his backstory. I didn't know that, that uh, he was, you know, ha offering some humanity in that scene with Charlie when he uh, was like, no, you just forget about me in my head. You know, he's this menacing villain, so I'm thinking, oh, he just doesn't want to get any more heat. He could kill Charlie, but that might draw more attention to him because he's already right. met with Charlie's mom, and maybe that would just be too much unnecessary uh, heat on him because the cops had already visited his place, and they're going to have to write up a, a report on that. So that's my that's my thinking. Uh, I do think he's really creepy, especially the the fact that Amy, they're, they're doing, we talked about this, uh, they mentioned that they're studying Trig which means that they're not that old. She is definitely not of age. Uh, and he is presumably this ages-old vampire, possibly centuries old, because he does have this painting, which seems right. to be uh, quite old, of, of a past lover or acquaintance or something. Uh, so in my assumptions, he was at least from the, you know, the 1800s. But, uh, and he's preying on the 16, maybe 17-year-old girl and uh, it is very creepy to me. And he is quite predatory. And that scene with Ed when he's walking in the trench coat through those those foggy alleys, I did get a shiver down my spine because he's got this blank kind of robotic look on his face. It almost reminded me of the Terminator in a way. He's like he's he is there to uh, finish what he started. And when he gets to Ed, he immediately tries to turn on the charm. He's reasonable and he's trying to he's trying to talk to him as if they're peers. But you know what he's trying to do. He's just trying to lure him in and make him uh, come to him uh, on his own volition. He's trying not to force it to happen. So 
I thought it was an amazing performance. He's always got that really great tone in his voice. And it's crazy to me that Chris Sarandon's first movie role was 1974, and he was 32. So his whole career leading up to that point had been mostly in the theater. And I think he really brings that theatrical presence to the screen yeah. uh, because he does very much play like that classic theatrical villain where he's always got that, that kind of deep and commanding voice, and he's, he's willing to do whatever it takes to uh, get what he wants. And yeah, I was I was very intimidated. He's got that look in his eyes where you can kind of tell uh, he's not really listening to you. He's kind of thinking of a way to uh, kill you, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, which is always very unsettling with me. Or manipulate you in some exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And he, like I said, he can turn on the charm, just like we've seen with Dracula's of the past. Um, they can be both animalistic and this charming kind of uh, gentleman's type of character. And that's really scary to me when somebody can do that, that kind of sociopathic attitude. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I was always shocked that Chris Sarandon didn't get more lead roles because almost everything he did was critically acclaimed, even if he wasn't in, you know, a great movie. Um, you know, whether it was a Goldie Hawn protocol, which wasn't, you know, very well received, but everything he did, like going back to Dog Day Afternoon, which he was nominated, right? He's a, yeah, yeah, he was, but he was incredible in it, yeah. And so, you know, I I was just always shocked he didn't get, he didn't get. I wonder though if maybe it was because that ultimately he does work better. I don't want to say he's the bit player, but as the interesting non central character because i think when people write you know sarandon has sort of that element where he isn't necessarily would be interesting as the you know the cop in in child's play he's good but he's not necessarily that memorable you know a lot of the roles he tried to take after that movie's like whispers and stuff which weren't very good movies but you know he's kind of playing this character that is your milk toast hero i don't know that he works as that there's characters in dog day afternoon and in fright night and in and then the Princess Bride, they're characters that kind of, you know, they could be one note. Someone could play them terribly. And yet he gives them all great shades of humanity. And he, he keeps you from rolling your eyes. Even with Prince Humperdinck, you know, he's a person, too. He, he comes off as a human being. Yeah. And, well, the one thing I think that really hurt his role in, in, in Child's Play was he tried to do a Chicago accident, accent, which he should not have done. Um, yeah, that was a little rough. <laughs> yes, that was rough. You don't need to. I've been. I've been to Chicago many times. Not everybody has that accent, so you you don't have to do that. Um, but yeah, I I think we all agree Chris Sarandon is great um, in this film. Let's talk about William Ragsdale as Charlie, who was doing Shakespeare at the time, studying at Berkeley in San Francisco and working part time in a hardware store during the day. He auditioned for Mask for Peter Bogdanovich, didn't get it, but it just happened to be Jackie Birch, the casting director who did think he was very good and recommended him for Fright Night. And the poor guy had to drive from the Bay Area to L.A. five times to get this part. Um, but he did, did he get do it in that red and white cow car, red and white yeah. cow car. He said he had like an early 80s Toyota <laughs> Celica, he said, as I think is what he said. So you brought him up earlier. You thought you think he gets short shrift. Um I do think he's really good at it, and I think he's and he beat out Charlie Sheen for the for this role, who is now kind of developed into Jerry Dandridge himself. Right? Yes, <laughs> except he's not after teenage blood; he's after tiger blood. Yeah. But he, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think he's great. You know, and Tom Holland talks about. It. He said, "Look," he said, "Charlie Sheen is, I admire him." He said, "But the problem comes down to Charlie. He didn't think Charlie Sheen could play the horror nerd." 
guy next door whose only real friend is Evil Ed. He said Charlie Sheen is just by definition he's the cool kid in high school. He sees the hero, Ragsdale's the everyman. Exactly, exactly, and so that's why he went uh, with William Ragsdale. So Jackson, what did you think of uh, Charlie? I think he does an admirable job. As you mentioned, I mean, he does do a really convincing uh, role, and and he is outshined, I think, by the the secondary characters just because because of how wacky they are. But he kind of reminds me of a Crispin Glover, like if he was more charming and confident. He's got that kind of nervous energy to him. Um, I do think he's well written, but I. It, I do have some complaints about the, his, the way he's written, namely in the fact that he's a smart dude. I don't think he would act as, as crazy to, as he does around the cops and his friends. I think he would be a little bit more convincing, seeing as how he's so knowledgeable on vampires and he's watched so many vampire movies. You'd think he'd know that that never works in vampire movies. You can't go, who's a vampire up there? You know, we got to go get him. You've got to kind of ease people into that and show them the evidence. Though I do think that uh, he really helps to kind of introduce you to this topic in a way that's not really like, going to turn you off because if you just toss this right into oh yeah vampire he's this weird charming sex vampire you're going to be like whoa that's kind of out of left field but the way he discovers it it's kind of like he's unraveling this mystery and you're right along with him and then when he's on this quest this crusade to finally kill the vampire and at first he tries the cops then he tries peter vincent to no avail you're like ah man none of this is work you really sympathize with him Uh, and i think he has the best on-screen relationship with Roddy McDowell as Peter Vincent, and really those two bounce off each other well. Um, but again, William Ragsdale, even though he does a great job, he's he's really not given as much as the secondary characters. Well, I think he's outshined by. I think they get the better lines to you know, and better parts to Definitely. scenes to be sure. Um, you know, but to his credit, I mean, the guy's gone on to he's got about eighty credits, acting credits on IMDb. He's done a lot of TV. Um, I think if you'd ask people in the nineties who he was, they always remembered him. Right? Well, yeah, that, and he was Ellen's last boyfriend on Ellen. Oh, I forgot uh, about that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. On the, on the sitcom. But, uh, I, I think he does. Yeah. I, I, Jackson, I agree that he doesn't, some of the things he does doesn't make sense. But then again, we've talked about this, you know, if you don't have stupid people in horror movies, you may not have a horror movie. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> also, I wonder if some of that could be down to, to the script up to the point where he goes to find uh, up until now, up until Jerry actually goes into his room and confronts him. He technically hasn't he's seen what looks like a vampire biting a woman. Right. He's everything he's seen up until that point it, in his mind is saying it's a vampire. But I, I watching it today, I almost got this feeling that even the, the problem is the packaging of the movie and everything is telling you, yeah, yeah. he's going to fight a vampire. Right. But up until that point, there's a thing that Charlie himself looks a little crazed, maybe a little disconnected from reality. And maybe he is just letting these overheated fantasies get the best of him up until Jerry comes into his room. There's still a possibility that maybe things aren't the way Charlie sees them, which would maybe make it make sense for him to have that kind of almost rabid behavior. Like you say, he just blurts it out. That whole scene with the cop is weird anyway. Like the cop hasn't asked a lot of leading questions to Charlie before he gets into the house. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you think that, yeah, exactly. (laughs) The 15 pages of backstory, the guy forgot a a couple of questions. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But anyway, you know, the rest of the supporting cast before we get to Roddy McDowell, I mean, we've got Amanda Beer says Amy, who most people remember from Married with Children and 
Um, you've got Jonathan Stark as as Billy Cole, who ha- here's the irony of it. Um, Jonathan Stark, after he did this, he did House Two, um, and then he quit acting to become a writer and producer. And one of his first jobs as a writer was Ellen, and unbeknownst to him, they cast William Ragsdale in Ellen. Oh, nice. Yeah. And it was funny because William Ragsdale said, yeah, and you never said hi. And, and Jonathan Stark says, and now knowing all the news coming out about the Ellen show, allegedly, um, you know, Jonathan Stark said, well, we weren't really allowed on the floor. So <laughs> <laughs> could have dropped me a note, right? We are starting to have email then, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But I, I, I kind of feel with Amanda Burse and Jonathan Stark that kind of the same way, you know, I, I, as Jackson, as you're talking about. I think they're fine. Um, I think they're serviceable. I don't think there's anything really memorable about them. In fact, I think Amanda Burse's performance, especially like when they're in the club, you know, and, and Charlie's trying to call for help and she's trying to trying to conjure up some tears and not doing a very good job. Um, until she becomes a vampire, she doesn't really become that interesting to me. Um, but... And by the way, she was 26 years old when she was playing Amy. Yeah, yeah, that surprised me. The, the whole cast pretty much uh, was was over their teenage years, and of course, she was she was over the the hill. And that was a traditional 80s thing. The one thing yes. I will say about this cast is I think that you look at them and you don't see young people, but I yeah. think they play them as teenagers effectively. You know, yep. uh, particularly Jeffries gets a, a feeling that this guy is is potentially a teenager. You know, it isn't like these. 30 year old refugees like you see in like 10 things I hate about you or, or movies like that right. where they don't they don't even try to be it seems like the plot could only accommodate them if they're all undercover cops yeah yeah exactly exactly but I I just think you know unless you guys have something else I think Amanda Beers I think she's serviceable I think Jonathan Stark is fine you can definitely see you know in some of his reactions that he was a improv actor in the 80s and early 90s which you can kind of see on full display on what was it whose line is it anyway or whatever i mean or even house two where he yeah he's well Char- yeah he's charlie in house two <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so but i think they're serviceable but before we get to roddy mcdowell we got to talk about stephen jeffries as as evil ed um tom holland said that those were choices he made and he made them right in the audition that, you know, the the cackle, the going over the top, he's chewing scenery. There are bite marks on every piece of film that he's, you know, that he's in. Uh, what did you think, Nathan, of uh, Stephen Jeffries as Evil Ed? You know, I knew a kid like that. Yeah. I thankfully wasn't that kid, but I knew a kid like that, that, you know, a lot of those mannerisms, that manic energy, mm-hmm. I, I think he's good in the movie. And you're right. It, takes a little bit because like he's spastic but he is he never changes that that tone like even when he's the vampire even when the moments when he's afraid he still has those weird facial tics and the way he reacts and he's jumpy and he's nervy and he's that way from beginning to end and i also like the fact that he kind of does get a point across that he is a loner you don't even need to ask why i mean obviously jerry sees it everyone can see it oh yeah but he isn't he isn't just a bad guy. He's not the annoying sidekick per se. You know, you can see that he generally, he would never say it, but he genuinely likes hanging out with Charlie and he likes hanging out with Amy and they are his friends. And you get a lot of that through very minimal. I think 
it's not a spastic Jim Carrey performance, right? It's a very right. It's tuned to this kid. This is this kid is is off, and he can't ever turn off what's wrong with him. And Charlie, maybe it's because you know they bond on a couple things, and Charlie is kind of a loner himself, even though he's less maybe so. You know, they they kind of bond. We don't see that, and they try to force it in the remake, but yeah. here you see it through the way Ed reacts to him. So I think it's a very good performance. It just takes a little bit to get used to because it is so, um, it could be grating initially, I think. Right. Right. I agree. So Jackson, what do you think of Stephen Jeffries as evil Ed? I think he's perfect. Uh, I love his performance. I, it took me off guard the first time I, I watched it. I was like, what is this guy's problem? How much cocaine is this guy on? Uh, but I, well, I, I, I love it now. Special effects people. There was a lot of cocaine on the set, but go ahead. Really? <laughs> I, I was not aware of that, but it makes a lot of yeah. sense now. Uh, yeah, definitely. He's very spastic, um, and, but I think it's to the perfect degree. It doesn't get annoying. Uh, I think it's just charming in a way, but also it's something for the other characters to bounce off of. I love that scene with Amy uh, and, and Ed, and they're trying to convince Peter Vincent to help them. And basically, Ed's just there to insult uh, <laughs> Uh, Charlie and Amy yep. and have and have Amy hit him, uh, which I thought was really funny. Uh, but that sets up later uh, the interaction between Ed and Peter Vincent, which I also thought were great. Really, he's just I, I don't think he would do well in a scene by himself. Uh, whenever he's with Chris Sarandon or he's with uh, Amanda Bierce or he's with Roddy McDowell, I think he's great. Uh, but he really needs somebody to, le- to level him out. And I think he gets that uh, in this movie a lot. But uh, yeah, it's to the perfect degree. I think his writing is great. And I think he is intimidating as a vampire, but also very sympathetic as both a human and a vampire. Yeah, he's got that. I mean, and Nathan, I knew people like that too. He's He's the smart nerd who's picked on but, you know, regardless, he has very little or no emotional IQ. Um, he's a bit condescending. You know, he calls these people his friends, but at the same time, he laughs hysterically at Brewster being humiliated in public. Um, you know, so he's, he's, just, he's just socially awkward, and he just doesn't know what to do. And on top of the death scene, which I do think is amazing, and they talked about that. Tom Holland talked about talking to Roddy McDowell and and talking to Stephen about it. And in some of the stills from the documentary, you can see that when Roddy is there with Stephen Jeffries in the death scene, um, Tom Holland is literally a foot away from them, like talking them through it. And, you know, that is heart-wrenching. And he, he, was, he told them that, like, he told Stephen Jeffries, you're dying. And when you look up at Roddy McDowell, what I want you to be thinking is, what have I done? What have I thrown away? And that that's when he authentically started crying. And that Roddy McDowell did as well. But even before that, the scene in Roddy McDowell's apartment, you know, if you, you know, you guys remember, of course, that Jerry's promise to Evil Ed is they won't pick on you. No one will call you names. You know, you're basically saying you're going to be safe. You're going to be okay. I'm going to take care of you. And then what's his first mission? To go to Peter Vincent's apartment. And what happens? He's mutilated by an old man. Yeah. And so even then he's like, 
falling back on the couch with the crucifix. He's like, what have you done to me? And he's crying there too. And it's almost, I, I guarantee you, if you ask Tom Holland, they had this conversation because Tom was good enough as an actor to, he, he, you know, he spoke at length about these scenes with them. And I, I'm betting uh, dollars to donuts that he told Stephen Jeffries, like, wait a minute, this wasn't the deal. I wasn't supposed to be hurt anymore. No, and I think he comes across that. even yeah. the, even in what he says. You know, when he his response is like the highfalutin hammer horror vampire response, right? It's like he retreats yeah. back to his horror movies when he's saying the master will kill you slowly, yes. so slowly, and it's like he's going back into his head. He's going back into the safe place. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just thought, you know, I, that's one of the things that really impressed me about this. I, I was thinking today after I turned off the special features, going back to and thinking about the Lost Boys and, and thinking about Near Dark that came after this. And, and of course, Dracula from 79, Nosferatu, the vampire, all the Hammer Horror films. I don't remember. And I, I still can't think of any. 30 Days of Night or what? Of course, those are kind of feral vampires, but... I'm still trying to think of a movie in which the vampires or the vampire killers emit as much, you know, raw emotion as they do in this movie. I can't think of one. Yeah, no, I, I don't I don't think so. Not not to the level of that scene. And two quick things I want to say with I, reading different things. You probably came across this too, Matt, that Stephen Jeffries, all of them had problems with the contacts, the vampire contacts. Oh, yeah. At one point, apparently, Stephen Jeffries went like temporarily blind. Yeah. Uh, his eyes were scratched. And he was in the scene when they go to I think it's a scene when they go to Jeff, uh, Jerry's house with Peter Vincent and with Charlie to prove that he's not a vampire. Uh, it's either that or the scene when when he and Amy go to meet uh, Peter. He had food poisoning that day. Uh, oh, Jeffries. Man. So Jeffries had a lot of complications through that film that, you know, he still gives a, a a really strong performance. The other thing, and because we're, it gets full spoilers here, that very last scene when you have the idea that Evil Ed is squatting in the house next door now where, right. where Dandridge once was. Now that's normally the scene that's the horror sequel moment, right? Where you're supposed to be right. kind of creeped out but watching it today and i think because of how sympathetic ed comes off it's almost as if it's thrown in there on a second layer which the second layer is hey he survived you know yeah. everyone else you know everything's back to normal right peter's got his job back and ed and, and or amy and charlie are still together and everything's going well for everyone and you're sitting there thinking except for ed ed is dead and then you know it's almost like no no he's he's uh he's still doing his thing yeah yeah and that was a, you know, Tom Holland said that was actually, he was forced to do that by the studio um, on the final draft. Uh, on In his different drafts, the original ending were, okay, they get through all this, and Charlie and Amy are in the bed. They've consummated their relationship. They're watching Fright Night, and Peter Vincent turns into a vampire on Fright Night. That was the oh, ending that Tom Holland a thriller wrote, moment and that it ends <laughs> at that moment. And the head of the studio, when he turned in his final draft, said he called him and just started cussing him out. So you cannot blankety blank do this. This is this is a summer movie. This is not supposed to be a downer. What's wrong with you? Do you want to make another John Carpenter's The Thing? It'll tank. This and is the ending so, to the howling already. <laughs> exactly. So and so he made him rewrite it. But he was like, I don't have a button. I don't have a carry moment. I don't have, what am I going to do? And so he came up with that. And that was the thing. And he's always said that if he had made a sequel, 
he kind of he kind of dances around that he didn't really like Fright Night Part Two. Um, he doesn't say it. You can just kind of he said that if he had done a sequel, it would have been with Evil Ed. And there was a um, comic series in the '90s or yes. the late '80s that did that, and it was cool because it it continued that Evil Ed story. Yeah, and that's what he said he wanted to do. So, but it's you know Tommy uh, Lee Wallace took it in another direction. But but anyway, yeah, I I love Stephen Jeffries in it. But now we got to talk about the uh, probably the mo- one of the most iconic roles from the '80s, and that's Roddy McDowell. We got to talk about Roddy it McDowell. Should have been an Academy Award nominated performance. I don't. Oh, I'm man. not joking. Don't you think? Oh, I agree, Jackson. What do you think? I think it's an amazing performance. I think he's just uh, amazing. And, and a lot of the stuff I've seen him, and I haven't seen a lot of his filmography, but um, he does a really great job in this. And I don't know that he doesn't strike me as a guy that really got the classic horror movement and, uh, and he, would, he would necessarily like those, those uh, Peter Cushing movies. But uh, he plays it perfectly, both in the that like kind of cheesy horror host, but also in this kind of pathetic, washed-up actor sense when we actually meet him. Uh, and I think the turning point for his performance for me, there are two, two parts. The part where uh, he's talking to Charlie and he's like, I lied. I thought that was a great moment, really turned me <laughs> yeah. around on him. And also when he's talking to Amy and Ed and uh, he's bragging, you know, making up all the stuff like, I just got offered a big movie role. And then right. uh, Amy's like, I'll pay you. And he's like, how much? Like immediately, without even thinking, <laughs> yeah. he's desperate. Uh, so that, that really made me love his performance uh, originally. But then his dynamic with both Ed and Charlie near the end, I love it. It just feels so great because he starts off as this um, uh, kind of down on his luck. He doesn't really want to hear about your crap kind of guy. But then he starts to care about these people. And uh, even though he wants to flee, he wants to leave town and uh, save his own butt. Once he hears that they've got Amy, you know, and he knows that Ed is, is converted and that Charlie's in danger, he wants to call the police. And then when Charlie tells him that the police aren't an option... And that he still wants him to, to help him, even though uh, he was paid to be there. He's on board. Um, he he really does care about these people uh, by that point, and that made me you know feel it made me feel nice and warm and cozy, like that classic '80s adventure feel, like the gang's back together again. Um, yeah. And uh, he he plays it perfectly. I love his outfit throughout the entire thing. He's wearing that that classic Peter Cushing robe. It's like a almost a kimono thing, but it's that that classic '50s and '60s robe. And then he's got that almost Sherlock Holmes outfit, which Peter yeah. Cushing wore uh, as Van Helsing, which I thought was amazing. Uh, and he's just he's just amazing. Plays the, the comic uh, lines amazingly, and he's a very serious actor, as you as you uh, mentioned earlier with the scene with Ed. It's it's just amazing all over. Yeah, and he was cast. I mean, uh, Tom Holland eventually wanted either Vincent Price or Peter Cushing, and that was shot down really quick because both of them were in poor health. And so he, of course, he had written the screenplay of the class of 1984, and he was really impressed with Roddy McDowell. And then he sat down and and, and spoke with Roddy, and, and Roddy had read the script. And he, and before Tom even opened his mouth, is like, well, here's the guy. He goes, oh, so he's a washed-up B actor. I know plenty of those. You know, he just got it, you know, immediately. He knew the character. He knew who he was. And, you know, Tom Holland tells a story. He says, you know, you know, Roddy McDowell was walking Hollywood history. I mean, the guy had been a child actor in England. He came over here in like 1938 when he was like 10 or 11 years old. His very first role in Hollywood 
was in How Green Was My Valley, which won the Academy Award for Best Yeah, Picture. that's right. You know, when he was like 12 years old, he was friends with Elizabeth Taylor. He was friends with Montgomery Cliff, James Dean, you know, on and on and on. And, you know, he, he knew all, Vincent Price. He was friends with Vincent Price. And so he he just kind of instinctively knew this role because he knew these people. He knew Peter Vincent. He knew who that was. And so he keyed in on it very, very quickly. So, you know, I, I'm sure there's some movie snobs that may raise a little eyebrow at what you said, Nathan, but I'm with you. He nails this character. Absolutely I mean, nails it. If you it. look at other performances that have been nominated over the years, and even in, in the 80s, I mean, this was a strong, a really strong performance. And I'm going to say something else that may... I mean, I don't think so based on what we know, but could seem kind of controversial. I think that this is far better than if Vincent Price or Peter Cushing had played this role. And let's take Great. out their health issues. Let's say their health had been on point. It's not because they aren't fantastic actors, but they what they would have done. And actually, Vincent Price was sort of campifying his his presence at that point, yeah. right? Like he wasn't quite doing those serious horror roles anymore. He was he was taking his seriousness and doing movies like The Whales of August, which is a fine movie, but it's yeah. it's no fright night. And right. he was he was trying to do something different. But I think either one of them would have played the role they'd always played, where Peter Vin Peter Vincent is someone different. And Rodney McDowell even makes that distinction. You know, obviously uh, when the script is there, Tom Holland is thinking this guy is going to be kind of like, you know, he Peter Vincent, the, the titles right there in the names, right? You know, it's mm -hmm. it's Peter Cushing and, and Vincent Price, obviously. But then what Ronnie McDowell said is, you know what? I wasn't trying to play. Let me be very clear. I wasn't trying to play Vincent Price. Vincent Price is a very good horror actor. Yeah. Peter Cushing is a very good horror actor. This guy <laughs> is not. He right. says that, you know, Peter Vincent is the guy, you know, Vincent Price had lots of roles with lots of diversity. This poor schmuck has had to play the same 10, the same <laughs> character in 10 or 11 different B horror movies. And he gets that point across. It, it was his idea to have that scene when you're watching the Hammer sort of yes. Hammer movie. And, yeah. and he pulls up the stake and it's pointed backwards. And it's backwards, yeah. <laughs> runs and <laughs> and even as a kid i remember seeing that that, that does but that does bring up the question though is why ed and all these other people you know ed says you're a fraud i mean and charlie goes to him for help what were they think they were getting when they wanted to have him help them fight vampires <laughs> yeah oh man uh yeah exactly it, it's I, he just, but you know, he just got it he was and he was an underrated actor anyway i mean his career kind of dried up in the 50s he started doing b movies like killer shark and you know stuff like that and then of course then he got he, the um planet of the apes movies and, yeah planet of the apes legend of hell house which is really know. good hell house he's, he's strong oh, in hell house. oh yeah absolutely i love that movie but it's you know it was definitely considered yeah. a b movie at the time and it's not like this movie reignited him in any uh great way as far as his, his no. career continuing went no but he was just you know you cannot find anybody to say anything bad about the guy. I mean, everybody just loved him. Um, he apparently, according to Tom Holland, you know, he had um, dinner parties every Wednesday night for his straight friends. Then he had a dinner every Friday night for his gay friends. And so he invited, it was funny, I was watching the, the reunion panel, and he had invited Tom Holland and uh, William Ragsdale and Chris Sarandon over for the Wednesday night dinner party. And unbeknownst to Tom Holland, he invited Vincent Price as a favor because Tom Holland always wanted to meet him. And so they have him over and, and Chris Sarandon and, and, and William Ragsdale and, 
and Tom Holland are telling these stories about this dinner party and how incredible it was. And he went into like Roddy McDowell's bathroom and he has like Char- a, a bolo hat from Charlie Chaplin signed hanging from his door, you know, and stuff like that. He's just got all this stuff everywhere. And William Ragsdale said the only thing he ever said that was ever offensive was he invited him, he invited Chris, he invited um, Tom, and he turned around and goes, Bill, you come too. He goes, I like you. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like he's still in character. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, and they just absolutely loved him. He was just beloved in Hollywood. But yeah, he never... After the 40s, he just never, I don't know if it was that the older folks still saw him as a child actor. You know, later on, they still saw him as Cornelius or Caesar or, you know, or, or, or whatever. But, but if for nothing else, this role is absolutely iconic. I think it's one of the best horror roles, definitely of the 80s and maybe period, because he just absolutely, in fact, I'm not a huge fan of Fright Night 2, but he's the best part about that movie. I was as well. about to say that that Fright Night 2 is fun as a sequel, but you're right, like it's kind of like a rehash, but it kind of works because he's back and they kind of do give him some things to do. I think if the rest of the movie had been more strongly structured around him, because doesn't he end up in a sanitarium at one point? Yeah, well, it's yeah, because that's been the whole years since the I've whole, seen it. Yeah. Yeah, the whole spin on the movie is now, you know, Charlie believes everything was a delusion. He's been talked you know, counselors have basically told him none of this happened, but he still believes it and he's all ready to go fight vampires. And so of course everybody thinks he's nuts. So um yeah, I, I think it's it's wonderful. I could go on and on and on. Jackson, anything else you want to say about uh, Roddy McDowell as Peter Vincent? Well, I'm glad you mentioned Cornelius, because that's what I heard this entire movie, by the way. His voice, I was like, oh, it's Cornelius. I couldn't place it for a while, because obvi- I didn't know that that was Roddy McDowell underneath that ape makeup and that mask. That's cool. uh, but but once you hear it, you can't unhear it. And so you, you mentioned earlier uh, that the, the original sequel that Tom Holland would have done uh, is with Evil Ed. You know what I would have wanted? is a sort of prequel spinoff of sorts, and it's literally just Orgy of the Damned, the Peter Vincent movie. I want to see that in its entirety because they keep talking about Orgy of the Damned. I want to see what happens in Orgy of the Damned because they've got a gun, uh, which which apparently plays a part in that movie, uh, and it's it's a classic horror movie. I want to see that done and that, that classic B-movie style. I would have paid 20 bucks to see that. Uh, and that's all I have to say on the matter. Yes, Roddy McDowell amazing performance uh and and as you were saying earlier nathan um i really do think that vincent price and peter cushing would have played this straight they i as much as they they do have range and you can see that in and especially vincent price movies i don't think that they could have pulled off the comedic timing that roddy mcdowell has he's got that kind of awkward but lovable energy that that uh only really he can pull off, but he also, again, nails that cheesy horror host. So he was just perfect for the role, and that's all I have to say about him. Yeah. Absolutely. And maybe that orgy of the damned is out there, because I heard there was something that said that a lot of the cast members have said he was taking behind-the-scenes video the entire yeah. time this movie was going on. And he took the tapes with him, and they don't know where they where they ended up or what happened to them, but he had tons and tons of footage of that was essentially the making of Fright Night that was his own personal video. Yeah, I I remember Jonathan Stark saying that he estimated that he had to have at least fifty hours of of, of tape because he was always recording. 
But uh, I don't know. Maybe one of the uh, makeup guys realized that he caught him doing blow, and so they came up there and got the tape. Oh, yeah. Anyway. That, you know what? That sounds like something that's going to show up in an auction 20 years from now. <laughs> yeah, right. And somebody's yeah. for $50,000. Well, I wonder how much of that, because Tarantino may, you know, have a line on that, because according to Tom Holland, um, you know, Roddy McDowell's collection of, of 16 and 35 millimeter films was extensive. I mean, that he had thousands and thousands of them. And I know that Tarantino for the new Beverly is always looking for those. So maybe Tarantino can can uh, dig those up. But let's talk about something I know, Jackson, you'll want to talk about. What did you, as a musician, Nathan, I don't know if you're a musician or not, but um, the score by Brad, Brad Fidel, what did you think of it? Uh, amazing. Oh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Nathan. No, no, you, you, you go ahead, Jackson. In a, in a word, amazing. Uh, not just the original score, but also the end credits uh, song, which we were kind of laughing at when we watched it together. <laughs> the Jay Giles song, yeah. yes. Uh, which is amazing. <laughs> but it actually does have some really great, like, stinger moments. I thought it was really tense, especially at the climax. I thought it was great. So I really appreciated it. Yeah, of course, he had done the Terminator. That's why he was picked. Uh, Nathan, what did you think of the, of the score and the music? I think, you know, so obviously... When you're watching it, you get this feeling it is very 80s. You know, it was very much of its time. But it also does have some classical elements to it. And it's really effective. I think it matches the mood and atmosphere of that movie really well. And it goes from having those sort of jazzy, sexy moments mm-hmm. alongside the horror. And I love that scene when when Roddy McDowell walks up to the house and he's like, which one's his house? And you have the ominous music and the, the fog pouring out. Yeah. He's like, oh. I see what you mean. You know, yeah. he's able to turn that gothic horror ambiance on with the music. And then he's also able to have those those uh, 80s music numbers. But that piece of music that plays during when Jerry actually kind of seals the deal, so to speak, as far as the vampirism goes with Amy, that scene. And then when, uh, you know, the, those musical pieces there are very effective. There's one that I think... As a piece of music, it's okay, but I I wish they had removed. And it's when Charlie is talking to uh, Peter, and they're having that heart to heart moment. That's really the foundation big scene. And the music it's playing over it sounds like something from like a a Hallmark film or something. Yeah. You know, it's it's yeah. the one piece of music that I feels out of place, and I just wish it was gone. You know, like at, at least for that moment. And but otherwise, I think that it adds a lot of personality to the movie. Yeah, I like I like Fidel's score. Um, the soundtrack, on the other hand, I mean, they went, they interviewed the music <laughs> supervisor, and he was go, they, they were talking about the importance of soundtracks, and of course, in the '80s, you know, that was a huge deal. But and I actually, I told Jackson this, I had the soundtrack on cassette. Um, looking back, I don't know why, uh, because the score is great, but the songs leave a little bit to be desired like i kind of like the armies of the night song i think mostly because how it's synced up to him walking in and out of those alleyways yeah in the film yeah it, yeah that's not too bad but i mean for some reason the 13 year old me thought that that jay giles band song was good and now <laughs> i'm like oh boy it makes angel uh, as a centerfold look like a masterpiece oh it does oh man and it was they interviewed the the guy, the keyboardist who became the lead singer because Peter Wolf had quit, but um, they said that they fought to get that song in the movie because the harmonica player for the Jay Giles band had insisted to his bandmates that a vampire had been living next to him for 16 years. Yeah, he has, he has it coming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he earned it. <laughs> 16 years is a long time. That's to hold a long like time. That. 
<laughs> yeah, to live next to a vampire, especially when you're a harmonica player for the Jay Giles band. But anyway, I, uh, yeah, the soundtrack, I don't know. The score, I do like. Um, but the technical aspects of the film, one, especially now seeing it, you know, in widescreen on Blu-ray as it was meant to in that anamorphic 35 millimeter, cinematography is great. I think the editing is is great, though some of the special effects people complain that that um, Tom cut some things they didn't want out. But I, I, I think the technical stuff is all right. The special effects are fantastic for its time. I know that you know some people can see it as a bit dated now, especially with I mean even the special effects people said you know hey look you know on VHS and in theaters in 1985 it looked great. Uh, but one of them joked, please don't, uh, put, hit slow-mo or pause on your Blu-ray. Um, because they're like the shark mouth that Amy has at the end. If you watch it, that's literally a piece that's not, it can't move. It's immovable. You can see it bounce once or twice. I mean, honestly, but it's yeah. conceptually so cool. Are you really thinking about that when she? No. What I'm thinking is, how are you going to kiss her later when she's normal again, and not think about this? Oh, 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 yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but yeah, and poor and God bless her heart, Amanda Bierce. I will give her this because she was wearing those contacts at the time. And by the way, to go back to your thing about the contacts, she was in such pain with that shark mouth and those contacts. And they didn't realize till they took them out, it had been the one pair of contacts they hadn't sanded down. Oh, my gosh. Ugh. And so not only that, but a couple times when she was chasing after Charlie, she literally kept knocking herself. She kept running into stuff in the head and knocking herself down. <laughs> and so she was so beat up after that shot that, oh, bless her heart. She, I'll give her this. She's a trooper, but... Um, Jackson, what do you think about the effects and the cinematography and all the technical aspects as the aspiring filmmaker? I think they're really good. I mean, we, we already touched on the, the standout effect, which I think is that, uh, the wolf scene and, and yeah. Ed's transformation back into a human. But, uh, the one that, that really impressed me was Jerry's ultimate demise, uh, when he's like engulfed in this green flame and disintegrating down to this like bat human skeleton. I thought it looked awesome, uh, and it was a really great effect. I even thought those those flames, which were obviously added in post, uh, looked really good for the time. I mean, they looked even better than those obviously added in flames at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark to cover that gruesome effect. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I thought they did a really good job with that. The one effect that I think doesn't work so well, you've already talked about it, the shark mouth looks good in some scenes, but in others it kind of reminds me of that Twilight Zone Eye of the Beholder uh, sort of mm -hmm. thing. And yeah. uh, uh, the also, when they have the vampire teeth in their mouths and they're just like normal mouths, they they look kind of cramped in there. Like they kind of look like those plastic uh, yeah. party city teeth you'd have that, that are going <laughs> to fall out. But then once they have kind of the wider mouth, like Evil Ed gets to this one point where his, kind of, his lip is curled and his teeth are all jagged and kind of pointed out, yeah. then it looks its best. He's still I got the buck teeth. I like that little touch. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I thought that the effects are really good. And I'd imagine that this doesn't have uh, the same level of budget as like a major blockbuster at the time. Uh, and I, I'm sure knowing that this, this is a horror movie and uh, studios always rush horror movies, that this wasn't given the time that it should have been given no. uh, in production. So I can respect them. And I heard, was, though, that yeah. they had the largest budget 
for vampire effects in a movie up to this point. Like it was like I think a nine million dollar budget, and about yeah. a million of it was the special effects. That effect oh, wow. you're talking about, Jackson, at the end when he burns up, it's it's almost like classically beautiful and almost like a classical art yeah. sense. You know, when the face is peeling back. And what I heard was when they were designing that creature because richard edlin worked on this and he'd also worked i think on ghostbusters yes and they had that ghost in the library i think yep. it's already pretty creepy when it bursts out but the original design they had for it was apparently so kind of terrifying that they couldn't put it in a pg movie and then later when they were designing not the bat but the bat human creature that thing that is burning at the end they said this looks a lot like the monster we originally designed the library ghost to be mm -hmm. and so they took that and that's kind of what you're seeing at the end when it's burning up is uh repurposing the library ghost the, the scary version of it from ghostbusters yes yeah and it was they did run out of money and out of time like the shark mouth thing was actually a last minute thing as well and they the Special effects team did that for free. Built it on um, the weekend or something. I think. Yeah, they did it over the weekend. And so, but also the biggest problem, one of the reasons they ran out of money and ran out of time was William Ragsdale broke his foot um, doing one of the shots when he was racing down the steps uh, when he thinks he's safe because he's not going to invite Jerry Dandridge in. And then, you know, he sees him sitting in the uh, chair with his mom. Um, he broke his foot, and so they had to delay shooting a little bit. He made a huge mistake as a guy who'd never done really any acting in a movie before other than just a cameo. He went to the doctor, and the doctor, being a Hollywood doctor, asked him the question, so this is delaying filming, right? And Ragsdale said, well, no, not really. Well, the doctor wrote that down, and the insurance company refused to cover the um, uh, delays. Ooh. So that cost, in fact, one of the producers would follow Ragsdale around for like a week or two after that. And every once in a while, I'll just look at him and go, $100,000 a day, kid. That's, <laughs> you're costing me $100,000 a day. So, they had to do some of the effects cheap at the end because even though, yeah, Nathan, you're right. They had a fairly good budget for the effects, for this kind of movie, but a lot of that had to go to pay for the, uh, overruns because William Ragsdale didn't know how to follow a Hollywood doctor and just nod and say yes. So <laughs> and insurance wouldn't cover it. So, but I think conceptually what those effects are showing is like we had said earlier, I had never, my concept of, vampires was that yes yeah, sometimes you got the awkward teeth and the, the the scary part of the vampire was always the performance which is true here but you get wild vampires you get vampires uh -huh. as monsters and i don't really can't think of a movie yes you get a little bit of that in salem's lot right. uh the 79 version but this is the first time really where you get this full-on these are monsters you know the, the inspiration being a shark that bat gargoyle thing is pretty cool too the one that flies in uh, although it's yeah. weird because you see it slash peter Vincent in the face in this pretty convincing looking tear mark. And then the next scene, he doesn't have anything on his face. So you're like, right, 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 I was, right. I was wondering yeah. how he's going to account for that. But, you know, that, that bat creature is cool. You know, Evil Ed and the wolf, like all of those things I had never seen before done in. And to be fair, I had not seen American Werewolf in London. That wasn't one that I was able to sneak in as a, yeah. as a third grader. But it just wild creatures, I think, that I hadn't seen applied to the vampire aesthetic before. 
Yeah, I, and a lot of the team that had worked on an American Werewolf under uh, Rick Baker, or and some of them had worked on the Howling under Rob Bottin, had worked on this, and and they did say that there were some problems uh, with that final scene, with the bat scene and the basement scene that was shot last, um, and that they had run out of time and run out of money by that point. Um, and so that they were really rushing things that may explain some of the continuity errors and, and so forth. They were kind of under the gun to hurry up and finish <clears throat> or otherwise. And Tom Holland had done enough TV that he knew that if you run out of money, uh, the studio is going to hire some hack to come in and finish it for you really quickly. And so he was just really pushing it to try to, to finish it off. So all in all, yeah, I think they work well. Cinematography is great, especially if you can folks don't, don't watch this pan and scan, you know, spring for the Blu-ray that uh, has the letterbox edition. So you can see it in widescreen and, you know, it's a great Blu-ray too. It's a beautiful. Transfer. Yeah, it is. It looks really, really good. So be sure to do that. So what else do we want to talk about with Fright Night before we wrap up? Nathan, you first. Uh, the mirror scene, the mirror dance. Yeah. sequence. Like, it's so funny because, okay, his, you know, Dracula does the come hither thing with his hand, you know, Bella Lugosi. And when, and the, the thing that he seals the deal with is this kind of skeevy 80s dance sequence. Yes. But when she is spinning in front of those mirrors and she's, you know, she's looking at the fact that she's twirling and there's no one there. I mean, it, is it a little silly? It is. But I think that's a yeah. really cool scene. Yeah. And, and Chris Sarandon was nice enough. Amanda Beer said that when she was filming that, he would stay there with her. And that if she got confused or whatever, he would jump in for a second to do it again with her so she, so she could mimic it. And so he just stood around, you know, even though he wasn't on the clock or anything, to help her out. And she really appreciated that. Um, but he says that's what he gets. That's the number one thing people bring up to him is the dancing. And he said <laughs> there was a time in the 80s where he could not take the subway in New York City. Because he'd have all these people, both guys and girls, walking up to him and talking about that dance scene. And he was like, I, I've got to get I've got rehearsal. You know, I got to get moving. And all these people are following him, asking about the dance scene from Fright Night. Uh, Jackson, what about you? What else do you want to bring up, pal? In that same exact theme, one thing that I noticed uh, this time around, this most recent viewing, uh, is when you have that that part where uh where Jerry has just come up to Amy and they've started dancing, but we're focusing on Charlie when he's on the phone with Peter Vincent. Right. Uh, there's a really great shot where it's using this, this like split focus diopter effect to show both Charlie on the phone with Peter Vincent in, in focus yeah. and the yeah. other people in focus. It, it's a really cool effect and I want to use it at some point, but it's also really tough to pull off in certain yes. uh, scenes and lighting, especially in a crowded shot. Like, I don't know, a nightclub, uh, so that just goes to show that some actual thought went into the production of the movie. It's got oh, yeah. substance. It's not just mindless fun. And I really appreciated that. Do you know who the DP is on this movie? I, I looked it up, but it, it didn't come up on the first page of Google. So I, I probably would have to dive into IMDb. Yeah, he was interviewed in the uh, You're So Cool Brewster thing. And he also was, I'll look up his name here in a second, but I, I just forget it off the top of my head. But um he was a little worried about working with Tom Holland because he was a first time director. Uh, but then he sat down with Tom Holland and everything was storyboarded uh, to a T. And so when he saw that, he was, you know, he was then he was fine and he was really happy to work with him. 
And but it was the name is Jan Cassier. Yeah. Yep, Jan Cassier. And he's done a bunch of stuff. I mean, oh my gosh, yeah. He's got a huge he's done fifty eight movies of cinematographer, forty other forty four other credits. Whoa. Um so he's done yeah, he's done a lot of stuff. Um, a recent done, one would be Fido that I think yep. you might know. Yeah. Yep. He did some kind of wonderful in the eighties. He did clean and sober. Weird science. Oh wow. Yeah. He's done a lot of stuff. So oh he did Bad Moon, the nineteen ninety six werewolf. That's fun. Movie. <laughs> yeah, that is fun. That that was shot well too. I didn't think it was very well acted, but it was shot well. Um and so yeah, but they storyboarded everything. They said, unfortunately, that, that Tom Holland had tried to draw his own storyboards, and that was bad. But at least they got, like, uh, the idea across. But uh, what? So you really appreciate Well, one of the things, it's funny you bring that up, Jackson, because that shot, and we had talked about this. I would mentioned this when we were watching it. Mm-hmm. That nightclub was the same nightclub they used, that De Palma used in Body Double. Right. And it was also where they had just Frankie goes to Hollywood had just shot a music video for relax for (laughs) body double. And because it was already set up, uh, Columbia said, go use that. So they used the exact same set like a week after Frankie goes to Hollywood did their music video, which, by the way, MTV refused to use, which is why they did the one with her standing in front of a laser beam real cheap because MTV turned it down. But that's a warehouse that they made to look like a nightclub. But it's I, but when I bring that up is this, because you brought up that shot. Well, who else does shots like that? Brian De Palma. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. It's almost yeah. like the DP had, had, was, was thinking about that. Like, oh, I got to got to pay respect when I'm using this location. Yeah. Because it's the only shot really that's like that, you know, in the film. Yeah, yeah it is. It, it really is. It really is. So. Before we wrap up, anything else, guys, we want to bring up about Fright Night? Because I think we could go on and do an LOTC yeah. episode just on Fright yeah, I'll Night. I'll try not to. to well, I don't, have, I, don't yeah, have Greg, I don't have. Four hours. Yeah, I don't have Greg Amortis's bladder. I don't know how he does it. Um, I'm pretty sure he's got a pee bucket or something there. Um, it's a I used to, for sure. Well, I used to. I used to think I said, "Oh, he's just editing out the pee breaks." And then I did the Hitchcock episode. With him and Dave and Bill and 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 uh, Haddonfield and and Justin, and no, we went through. I don't. I oh. what was it, Jackson? Like three and a half, four hours on on Hitchcock on Land of the Creeps, something like. I think it was every. We covered yeah. every Hitchcock movie, and we went right through. And I remember two things. One, I almost needed my wife's help getting up off the couch because my legs had locked up, and, and 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 two, I almost had to float to the bathroom. But anyway. Um, yeah. I, don't I was just on, on their their uh, their trippy episode, and it, yeah. it is exactly what you just said. It's a four, and you, it's all pretty much right there. You're there, and uh, nope, there were I, I didn't have a pee break. <laughs> oh man, I don't know how they do it, but I can only imagine. I listened to that one that you were in, Dad, and yeah. yeah, it was about it was like four hours and sixteen minutes or something like that, and it took me like six different sittings to listen <laughs> to that whole podcast. <laughs> And let me tell you, I don't have to well, sit we down went and listen. through every single Hitchcock movie. Exactly. In when detail. Greg asked me to be on, I thought, oh, we're just going to hit the highlights, just kind of general. Nope, we went movie by movie. You've got to appreciate that. I mean, that's a, it, it makes for a very interesting listen. And the Nordicar, I mean, that was epic. Oh, yeah. That was like six hours. I know. <laughs> but I know. One last thing I wanted to mention about Fright Night, and I, I wanted to ask you guys earlier. I really like the scene when they have to go and, you know, when they're calling 
Jerry to get him to agree to do this. And this, again, it shows the, the, the smartness of the writing. I thought it was very interesting on the grounds upon which he, he says he can't have the cross in the holy water. You know, right. the, that, that was, I thought, a, a clever kind of thing because it's like, oh, that's interesting that they would think to include that. You know, I'm a born-again Christian. That would be sacrilegious for me to do this. And it's like, oh, right. that, that's reasonable. That seems like a, you know, they don't they don't think Charlie's telling the truth. So, of course, they're not going to push it. So I, I appreciate, I think it's little things like that that add that element of reality. Oh, they thought long enough to say well what what could he realistically say that's going to get them to back off a little bit you know i thought that was a fun scene oh absolutely and you know I, even though tom holland wrote this he says he wrote the screen first draft of the screenplay in three weeks he said he thought about it for a year before he sat down and actually started writing and i think you can see that that he really spent a lot of time thinking about this story i think that shows but uh, jackson what about you anything else you want to bring up I have one more thing, uh, just a little note here yep. on the casting, which we didn't touch on earlier. Uh, Dorothy Fielding as Charlie's mom is a yeah. small role, but I think she's really good in it. She is. And she disappeared. Tom Holland said they can't find her. She quit acting in the 90s. Nobody's heard from her since. Well, let's just hope she settled down somewhere and she's happy. Um, but yeah, she's given a lot of great lines, honestly. And her uh, back and forth with Charlie is very humanizing for Charlie, kind of embarrassing for him at times. Um, my See favorite when he's in the bushes. Exactly. That's yeah. what I was watching. Yeah. So funny. She just totally blows his cover. And then he runs in and he's basically like, Mom. I, I know. Like, so well, great. that she also gave you this shot of him being that close and running into the house. Oh, I know. Yeah. And I love that. You know, what you, Jackson, you brought this up. We were watching it. Was she's offering her 16 year old son a Valium? Yeah. The 80s <laughs> wild, man. <laughs> How about Jerry's apples? I heard that yeah. Chris Sarandon added that detail. And he's like, I did yeah. a lot of research about bats. And I thought, maybe he has some fruit bat in his DNA. Yeah. <laughs> we touched and Tom on that Holland too. okayed it right on the phone. He said he called Tom Holland. He goes, so, he said, I read this one book on vampires that say they may have been descended by bats. And if bats on the evolutionary chain all come from the same, then maybe there's some fruit bat. And Tom Holland's like, great, do it. <laughs> it's a cool time. It That's is. right. You get, yeah, the, you get the feeling he's keeping his fangs sharp, right? Yeah, exactly. It works. It absolutely works. So, oh, man. Anyway, so are we ready to give our rating and recommendation on this, guys? Yeah, yeah let's do it. All right, let's do it. So, Jackson, all right, you came to this movie last, so you go first. What, what is your uh, rating and recommendation? Uh, you know, I've struggled with this. I used to be, I used to be lower on it, honestly. If I'm being honest with you, I used to be lower. But at this point, it's resting in an 8.7, uh, 5 out of 10 for me. Wow. Um, so. That's a high mark for you. It is. It's a high mark for me. I usually rate lower than you. But I, I, I think it's so enjoyable. And, and literally the only problem I have with it, uh, are, is Charlie acting so dumb. Uh, that's, that's like my biggest problem with it. And when that's my biggest problem, you know that you're dealing with a, with a classic movie. Um, I think it's one of the best in the vampire genre. I do want to briefly ask you, just just like really quickly, Lost Boys or Fright Night? Because that's a question I always get, uh, and I want to know from a, you. That's a Sophie's choice, man. What are you doing to me? I mean, uh, it's like there was a guy on Twitter, Tommy Doyle, was always asking me to choose like between like <laughs> the Howling oh, and the American yeah. and London. <laughs> Stop it! Don't do that to me. Uh, I don't know. I, I, if I, I were to guess, Fright Night. Uh, I just, I love Fright Night, but then on the same time, I mean, it's like I was 15 when I saw Lost Boys, 
Mm-hmm. I saw it at the drive-in on opening weekend with some buddies. And, man, like, for a long time, I wanted to be a Lost Boy. You know, I had the poster. I had, I thought they were the coolest thing ever. I was a little ticked off at the Corys and Jason Patrick for killing them. <laughs> um, so, spoiler alert for Lost Boys. But anyway, I don't know, man. That's a, that's, that's a tough one. So, if Nathan, I you're were- going with Fright Night? I go on Fright Night for this reason, and it ties into kind of what you just said. To me, Fright Night feels like a more complete movie. The Lost Boys, obviously that title kind of, I don't want to make this about the Lost Boys, but the Lost Boys were so cool. The actual, those guys living in that abandoned amusement park, those ties to the Peter Pan kind of concept and the idea, why were they not truly the main characters? You know, I guess for me, the Lost Boys is such a cool movie, and it makes you, I think Dave Becker says, it makes you want to be a vampire, you know? Yeah. In that sense, in that film. And why wanted more of them i wanted more of that i wanted more of their relationship with again i don't get any spoilers but there's their their ultimate leader is revealed and that character is very fascinating too i yeah. wanted so much more of that i love what's there but to me if i look at completeness uh fright night feels more complete to me fair enough that's a fair point that is a fair point so uh i don't know but all right jackson so now that you've you you're gonna give me insomnia so what <laughs> what uh uh do you say buy it rent it i say buy it i don't own it currently um but i would say buy it definitely i want to get that blu-ray just to see uh the extras and to see it and and all of its hd glory uh with with the original the original way it was intended to be seen um yep. so I'm, I'm looking forward to that but uh, if you if you can rent it, you know, that's always a good option as well. OK. All right. Nathan, what do you think? Some of this obviously is nostalgia and I've been with this movie for so long. But uh, and the critic in me, you know, is is wanting to kind of hold off from the full 10 out of 10. I'll give it a give it a nine out of 10. I love it. I think it's a buy it. I think buy the blue. Right. I do have a quick question for you. Is that is that documentary worth seeing the, the Brewster? You're so yes. cool. Yeah, it is worth seeing. On on the uh, special features on the Blu-ray, uh, some of them are just outtakes from the documentary. Oh, okay. Uh, and the one interview, the interview with Tom Holland by Ryan Turek, you can find that on YouTube. That's an old, you know, um, uh, thing that he used to do for Fangoria. So, but the the documentary is worth it. The one thing I haven't watched yet, there is a commentary by Tom Holland. I do w- really want to see it. Um, I think that would be worth it. Yeah, um, I haven't watched it yet either, but I yeah. want to. Yeah, I want and, to see it. Because I was catching pieces of him in the In Search of Darkness documentary yes. that's now up on Shutter, and it, it was making me think, oh, I love listening to Tom Holland talk. He's just a cool guy. Absolutely. Really sharp, you know, uh, well-educated, you know, and a true horror fan. Um, I think that, you know, in the 90s, sorry, Jackson, I think you should have probably gone back to screenwriting. <laughs> or maybe writing novels than instead of, you know, inflicting us with the Langoliers. But anyway, um, I, Nathan, I'm right with you. It's a nine out of 10. Uh, I looked at my old letterbox review I did a couple years ago. And at that time I called it an 8.5, but I, now I'm bumping up after a couple of rewatches into a nine. And I definitely call it a buy. The Blu-ray is definitely worth it. It looks fantastic. The special features are good. And for once, because I do think it comes from uh, Sony Columbia, we get a major studio Blu-ray that actually has decent, you know, special features, which certainly doesn't happen with Warner Brothers. So, um, no. no. Oh, gosh. So, 
Well, folks, before we reveal uh, next week's flick, um, be sure to check out our website, fatherandsonwatchhorror.com, and our Twitter and Instagram accounts as well as our closed Facebook group. We want to thank our Patreons. We just dropped a bonus episode. When was that, last Monday, Jackson? Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, and our favorite small roles in, in horror films. What do you call them? Mini but but memorable roles mm-hmm. in horror films. Um uh, and we are trying to figure out a commentary track to do at some point before Jackson starts back up at school and, and my doctoral studies start back up. But uh, we want to thank all of you who are Patreons and all of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast. We appreciate that. Now, Nathan, where can they find you online, man? I think find me on Facebook. I also find me at the Phantom Galaxy podcast. That's Phantom Galaxy at podbean.com. And, uh, We've got a lot of episodes up there. I just did one recently with Bill Van Vagel and Dave Becker about Ray Harryhausen movies. Yes, and, I was um, listening to that. Oh, awesome. And so it, it's a lot of fun to go back and see those. And uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Phantom Galaxy. That's uh, Phantom with an F there on Twitter. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, I was just recently on Land of the Creeps talking their mind-bending and trippy horror for about four and a half hours. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's a good times. So, um, but yeah, and I had a blast doing this. Thank you so much for having me on. It was so great to talk this particular movie which i've had a lot of history with so oh absolutely absolutely we had a great time definitely check out phantom galaxy i just actually downloaded the harryhausen episode i'm listening to it tomorrow morning on my jog so i'll be listening to that tomorrow uh it's a great podcast um and i also listened to the land of the creeps uh, episode uh last week uh my jog's not so long that i get through that in one you know one listen <laughs> Uh, usually, yes, triathlon. Me, usually takes me three or four jogs to get through those but uh, at least plus the drive there and back uh but anyway those are some wild movies <laughs> yes yes absolutely absolutely so uh jackson where can they find you online uh well, on twitter i'm at kane underscore hero 12 that's k-a-i-n-e underscore uh hero 12 on letterboxd i'm at kane hero that's just uh, one word and i've also got a youtube channel which is linked in every single one of my profiles and it's also floating around the internet you'll probably run into it at some point it's inevitable <laughs> <laughs> all right and before one thing i did want to mention i meant to mention it early on in the episode and i forgot uh jackson and i both did this on on twitter and if i have the um uh if if i remember tomorrow to do this i will call into lotc to do this because greg hasn't mentioned it he needs to um we are lobbying jackson and i are lobbying openly lobbying joe bob and darcy to give the next silver bolo award to land of the creeps uh they deserve it it's it's well well deserved I'm glad H&P got theirs. That was deserved, but uh, Land of the Creeps should be next in line. So uh, we did, I know, Jackson, you and I both uh, commented on uh, Darcy's tweet that it should go to Land of the Creeps. And yeah, we did we the need, same. Yeah, and, and so I'm going to keep lobbying for that. So if you're listening out there, folks, be sure to get on Twitter and just tweet Darcy, because I think she's the one who makes the decision, really. Six hours of Nordic horror, guys. That's right. That is right. So... Uh, get that out there and, and let's get um, Greg and, and Bill and make Dave, Dr. Shock Becker, possibly the first two time Silver Bolo Award winner. That would be well deserved. So, um, folks, be sure to do that. You can find me uh, on Twitter and Letterboxd as Pastor Matt R. Currently working through the horror movies of the year 2000. Uh, next time, uh, we will be joined by Gilman Joel Robertson. 
uh, to discuss Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes from 1977. So, yes. nice. yeah, awesome. looking forward to that here in about a week. And uh, and that should be a, a, a lot of fun. So, all righty. Well, Jackson, say goodbye to the good people. Goodbye. And remember to break your basement windows. <laughs> Are Do you it. sure about that? Do it. All righty. Well, I think this is the way to go out. So thanks for (laughs) listening. Until next time, remember that the family that watches horror movies together stays together. Time, Mr. Dandridge. <laughs>